Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. How's it going? What's what's going on? What's up? My partner's on strike, so that's exciting. We're a household on strike. <laughs> I mean, solidarity, sister. How is the strike going? It's okay. I mean, the weird thing about the strike is there's no picket line. And so aside from like an action that the union's organizing every day, there isn't like a steady... Um, activity to build solidarity among the faculty members, which is weird. But on the other side, uh, every time there is an activity or an event or a protest, people are really into it. So, I mean, the morale seems really high and people are uh, really like chanting and getting into all of the different kinds of activities they've been that they have been holding. They're, they're all very creative and interesting. Um, but it does seem like it's missing some of those elements of like very classic strike kind of relationship building. So that's too bad. But, you know, they're going on to week four of a strike and the university just sucks so much. I mean, they refused to negotiate for two weeks and I think talks broke down late last week. So the big question is whether or not students are going to lose their semester. That's where we're at. But um, but yeah, from the front lines of a faculty strike. (laughs) Well, the good thing about strikes is that it's all about the membership. And so, uh, you know, maybe there's some members who are listening to us who might be inspired to do some actions of their own or some organizing of their own that could contribute to the strike action. Uh, And you know what, I think, and I actually have been thinking deeply about this recently, um, creativity is the lifeblood of activism. And as much uh, courageous, creative action uh, that can happen, the better. I'm uh, teaching a workshop this week to a bunch of artivists about that, uh, about how to to think through, um, you know, the creativity and uh, the courage that's needed to to sort of break through and create an action that has has impact, inspires people, and makes things fun. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, if you uh, are striking right now and you're thinking about those sort of things, I'm with you. Think on, <laughs> think on, share them with us and with everyone too, because that's awesome. How are you? We love that. Good. I'm good. I uh, finally have a primary care physician <laughs> in uh, in Los Angeles, and that uh, might be TMI for for the listeners, but it's uh, something that has taken me some time to get, and it's quite a relief to get that. And uh, I'm feeling good about that because uh, my feet have been in a lot of pain lately. I'm so happy to be able to figure that out. And otherwise, feeling pretty good, a little distressed about what we need to talk about uh, tonight, Mm -hmm. but otherwise feeling pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, before we get to that, let's do a couple of um, announcements. Okay, so number one. I, this isn't actually an announcement. This is advertising. (laughs) I know that we said that we're going to not advertise anymore, but... We are happy to advertise for very good causes. And there is a podcast that you may have heard before, maybe not. I'm the host, and it is for Fernwood Publishing. So Fernwood is an independent publisher in Canada, publisher of my last two books and a lot of really awesome radical books, authors like Harsha Walia and Pam Palmiter and Tyler Shipley, folks publishing lots of different kinds of stories, different kinds of books. So check out Fernwood's books. 
but the podcast to celebrate the 30th anniversary of Fernwood. You can catch it every two weeks. There's a new episode. We're already, already up to episode 12. It's called 30 Wood. 30 Wood, because it's the 30th anniversary of Fernwood. And so um, listen to it if you want to hear conversations with Lynn Jones and Elle Jones, with Anne Bishop, and actually the most recent episode with Colleen Cardinal is definitely one of my favorites. So you can get it anywhere you hear podcasts. It's called 30 Wood. You absolutely have to listen to it. Not just because they're advertising, but because I also make it. It's my podcast. You should listen to it. So 30 Wood, wherever you get your podcasts. Great. Love it. Second, I also have to apologize, acknowledge that I misgendered Tortuguita, who is the activist who was shot and killed by police protesting Cop City. You'll remember that from us talking about it last week, and I mentioned on the Daily News podcast. So apologies there. A couple of listeners caught that. I did not catch their gender, and so that's that's where the error came from. Third thing from me, Sandy, I hope that you're coming up with a whole bunch of stuff that you want to announce as well. <laughs> and I'm only mentioning this because it is so rare that I get to smaller parts of Canada. If you are listening from, drumroll, in and around Gravenhurst, Ontario, mark your calendar, April 27th, I'm going to be speaking at the Sawdust City Brewery in Gravenhurst, and it's brought to you by the local Labour Council. It's going to be a riot. We're going to talk about organizing. We're going to talk about stopping Doug Ford. And um, thanks to them for bringing me out. But tickets are available. I think they're about $10. So check out local Labour Council. Check out Nora Loretto Sawdust Brewery, um, Gravenhurst. You'll find it April 27th. Be there. Don't miss this chance. I want to see Sandy Nora listeners show up. Yay for Gravenhurst. We love it. <laughs> I love it too. I'm like, oh God, should I just go on to North Bay and see my family? Uh, probably not. But maybe, maybe we'll see. Well, we are, dear listeners, once again, going to be talking about cops this week. But before we do that, I would like to give uh, some appreciation to the listeners. Uh, I'll do it this week because... You just you just had a whole bunch of announcements, and I'm jelly. I want an announcement, but I'm not doing all the shit that you're doing. So <laughs> here we go. Thank you to Becky, Antoine, and Josh. Thank you so much for your support this week, and thanks to everyone who donates to the podcast. We couldn't do it without you. Yes, thank you so, so much. Okay, Sandy, tonight, today, this afternoon, this morning, what are we talking about? We're talking about cops again. But can I say one thing about cops before, like a very Toronto-centric thing about cops before we get into our actual cop story? Jesus, a cop avant goût. All right, go ahead. (laughs) Did you hear that Mark Saunders, former chief of police of Toronto, is thinking of running for mayor of Toronto? <laughs> I, I, yeah, I've seen that. I've also seen people being like, he better not be thinking about it. And I think I've seen more people say that than that he is seriously thinking about it. But uh, do you think that we need another cop in politics? <laughs> no, but I'm also like, what kind of world do we live in where... The guy who was like literally responsible for, uh, you know, no one looking for Bruce MacArthur, like there was like a whole inquest about it and was they were like, eh, we're not going to um, get you in trouble for this on a technicality. <laughs> but 
this guy responsible for the fact that the Toronto police were not looking for a serial killer in uh, the Church Street Village. This guy, who is also responsible for the Toronto police not um, giving the information about the Toronto police officers who brutalized and and like forever harmed DeFonte Miller when they, they beat him so badly that he lost an eye. That guy was like, nah, we're not going to report this to the police watchdog. Like that same guy, the guy who resigned uh, before the end of his term, like his his chiefship was extended and uh, until like 2021 or something. And he resigned in part because of how much controversy uh, he was getting. Now, he said he wanted to like be with his family, which is what everybody says when they resign from a position of power um, uh, way ahead of time. But he had just been, his whole contract had just been extended. That guy, that guy, the one who was like, so into racial profiling. He like wanted to doggedly defend carding when literally no one was doing that anymore. That's the guy who's like, oh, he might run for mayor. <laughs> cool. Like I just, <laughs> what, what world do we live in where that's like even possible without everyone being like, ah, LOL, mm-hmm. hilarious that this could even be considered. Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of feel like with that record as the police chief that his candidacy is not going to go very far because uh, you got to be a little bit competent like a Julian Fantino or a uh, what's his name there Bill Blair <laughs> you know jailed 1100 people or Fantino just being a fucking cop shit head so my money's on Sanders certainly not winning but it does definitely uh, speak ill that he would even be mulling this over and that anyone would be giving credence to that so right. don't do that. Don't, don't run. Or run. You know what? Fuck. Do it. Who fucking cares? Nora. <laughs> Toronto needs 47 candidates to run for every mayoral election, does it not? Oh, God. At some point, <laughs> that shit city just needs a full-on shakeup. I just don't. Anyway, that's the, 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 the small cop story, very Toronto-centric, that I needed to inject with. Uh, we're talking about another cop story. You may have heard it on the Daily News this week. Nora. Yeah, this is a really important story for us to deconstruct. Um, so the story that you know you would have heard, I'm, I imagine, was that two police officers arrived very early morning after a domestic violence call or a mental health call. I mean, there's been different ways that it's been reported, but a call came from someone's mother uh, that her son uh, was in need of whatever. Two police officers show up and the son shoots and kills them. And so for the entire day from early morning in Edmonton time to the end of the day, this story is focused on uh two cops being shot dead as they arrive on the scene for a call. Now, there's no indication uh, like who the shooter is. It gets held, this information gets held until the news cycle fully flips over the first day and it comes out that the shooter is a teenager. He's a fucking kid. And it's like, 
okay, like that raises a fucking lot of questions. And it really stood in contrast to the first write through that I saw from CTV Edmonton, which quoted their like a guy they talk about being an analyst for CTV on crime who mentions a rise in guns and gang related crime in the article about the two police officers being shot and killed before we know anything about them. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We just got a masterclass on how the police holds back information to fully control the narrative, understanding that police hold this vaulted position in society where their death is going to be the leading news, unlike, you know, the 18-year-old worker that died in the grain elevator last week in Ontario or the two workers that died in, in Quebec in uh, Bas-Saint-Laurent yesterday or two days ago from carbon monoxide poisoning on their workplace. No, no, like you didn't even hear about those stories. But of course, we heard about police officers being killed on the job. And um, and yeah, I, I, it's just like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's not very often that you get a direct look at how they manufacture consent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it, what's also interesting is that, and, and who knows, right? Like, uh, perhaps this is just because of the, the way the news got out, but the international coverage with the very solid exception of Fox News does in every headline mention that it was a teenager. Um, but again, as you quite rightly noted, uh, the police were uh, clearly selective in the type of information that they were sharing with the media. And um, one thing that's that's also interesting is, you know, we do have this sort of cultural understanding that, you know, when a police officer dies, there's going to be like, you know, um, uh, this is something for, for politicians to respond to, to opine on, to offer condolences to the family. Sure, of the police officers. But gosh, I mean, there's something really uh, heinous about the way that this incident is being talked about um, uh, as well because of the framing of it, I believe. So in framing the conversation as as something that people think of in their mind is like, uh, oh, you know, this is how police put their... their um, themselves on the line every day and uh, this is a dangerous job and so on, you could miss the very important detail that um, calls have been made um, about mental health to this household and about this teenager before in the past, which begs the question that we have asked (laughs) several times that activists have been asking forever. Well, what did they do in those first couple times that they were called uh, to to support this teen when this teen was going through some sort of mental health crisis? And why are they the only ones to call? Why do they continue to be the ones to be called during these mental health crises? Well, we know why. <laughs> it's clear <laughs> Well, yeah, we, we know why. It's clear that this uh, this teenager needed some sort of support. I mean, clearly this teenager's mother thought that. Um, and, you know, this teenager's mother was also uh, wounded during the course of this, this interaction. 
Um, but clearly, I mean, if you are in a state, you we said this before, if you're if you're in a state where you need some sort of support, it can be very frightening and it could increase the um, the fear uh, response that someone might have if, you know, police officers who are armed show up. Uh, it might not be your first thought as someone who's going through a crisis that, oh, look, some supportive people here to help me out. No, and we know uh, over and over and over again that just the presence of police makes people really nervous. And when they're already in mental health crisis, having a police officer banging on your apartment door, telling you to open the door, telling you that, oh, it's it's okay, it's okay, like you can come out. Like we, we can imagine like even if they're not busting in guns blazing, which they do, but even in the most gentle possible way, trying to get someone to open a door, they're still cops. They're still armed. They're still present and have the power to detain and have the power to arrest and have the power to kill. And so their very presence is going to escalate a situation. That's fucking, we know this, like, like listen to the families of people who are killed by police. They all say the same thing. You know, I think of the story of Chantelle Moore, the indigenous woman who was killed in New Brunswick when someone called for a wellness check on her and, and the police went and looked through her window and she was sleeping on the couch. So then what do they do? Mm -hmm. They like startle her, something happens and she's shot and she's killed. You know, like, it's just like, uh, Okay, that's so weird because if they didn't have a gun, no one would be dead in that situation. Like, no one would mm -hmm. be dead in that situation. And police, like, the the job of the police is to be in dangerous situations. Like, fuck. <laughs> I, I think that that's obvious. You know, you shouldn't be killed on the job, but your job is to be in dangerous situations. And so maybe... Maybe bringing more danger into a situation, bringing guns into a situation, bringing someone wearing a bulletproof vest and who's got the air of the, of the, the, the state, the authority of the state, bringing that towards someone who is in crisis is a bad idea. I mean, this is just it's, it's like saying it is so silly because it's obvious. But here we have a situation where. That's obvious that that should not have happened, that someone, probably someone else should have been the people responding to this call first thing in the morning or or maybe not. Maybe this 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 teenager was going to shoot whoever was going to show up. I don't I don't know. We, we know fucking so little about the situation still that that's a whole other thing for us to talk about. But at the very least, like when like what is the point where where police departments are finally prohibited from being the first person to show up to these crisis calls because they're obviously not helping. And in fact, they are definitely not helping. They're causing harm. They're causing harm to others almost always. And then in this case, ca causing harm to themselves. Well, it would, it would require us to care about the situ situation beyond like, oh, you know, there's someone with a mental health crisis who needs to be dealt with, which is how I've come to understand, like, I, I, I must conclude that city officials, provincial officials, and federal officials who are responsible for the police must be thinking about this stuff. Because at this point, too, like, I mean, so many of these stories, the follow-up is like about, uh, you know, the funeral for the police officers, the amount of money that the province is going to be delivering to the police officers' families, when it's like... 
should should we not be talking about a mental health crisis that continues to be an issue in Canada and how we're going to how we're going to um, deal with that, both in preventative terms and in terms of when someone is in an acute crisis. Like it should be, it should be one of the number one things that we're talking about after an incident like this happens. But it's, but it's not like I, that to me is, is really quite stunning. And whether it's like what's happened in this case or in other cases where the police are the ones who are killing um, the, the person who's going through a mental health, health crisis, like in the situation with Chantal Moore, as you've mentioned, and, and tons more, the, you know, uh, innumerable more that exist, uh, examples that exist of this happening, you know, we don't hear the same sorts of, um, you know, responses uh, from governments about how they are going to compensate families for their loss. And oftentimes, you know, these families are are really struggling afterwards. When somebody is lost in a community, when somebody is killed, uh, when somebody um, kills themselves. You know, this has reverberations beyond that, uh, that individual who, um, who has, has gone through with that act. And so in this situation with this teenager, you know, this is a teenager who, you know, this is a family situation. There's a community that's involved in this and we have a community responsibility for how we address these issues and quite frankly, um, you know, the, the people in charge are derelict in their duty. Now, I want to switch topics uh, a little bit and look at the way that that police have been withholding information from journalists and then how journalists have just gone with that and been like, OK, so here's the line from police. So this is a situation where police would have known pretty much instantly that they were dealing with someone who's very young, right? Like, let's imagine it's a 16-year-old. He probably doesn't look like he's 20. Might even look like he's 14. Who knows? But they, I'm going to say deliberately, did not release the information of the teenager, being a teenager, until the end of the day. And in so doing, allowed a narrative to arise that we probably were dealing with an angry older man who the woman who was injured was probably his wife. And um, who knows, maybe he had a long history of, of violence towards her. Like there was a lot of ways that 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 the imagination online turned into like what, what kind of person is waiting for cops to show up ambushing these two police officers when they come to this to the, to the call from the home. And so by the time this is already cycled through, by the time CTV has already tried to make this about guns and gangs and not about like a mental health crisis, we then start to hear these kind of like stories popping up here and then there, uh, you know, slowly that we're talking about a child, that we're talking about someone who's 16 years old, that uh, is not, not someone that would probably even be tried as an adult had he not killed himself right after this happened. So that's all very interesting. There's been no ID of the person, which I also think is interesting, which, you know, says to me that this is someone who's probably white. I don't think that the police would hesitate in a, in a, in a, in a second if the person was black. And um, that, so that's very interesting. I mean, I'm, I know we're talking about a minor here, but the minor has been killed. So there's no protection of identity anymore. There's no legal need to protect the identity. So anyway, that's very interesting. 
And then there's this whole other angle related to Pizza Hut. Now, I'll pause there because I don't know if you want to respond to what I just said or I can go right into the Pizza Hut shooting. No, the only response that I have is to say that you are right. Like there has clearly been an effort to create a, a, a particular type of story. One of the quotes from the deputy chief when when people were were when journalists were asking for more information about what happened, um, they said, um, and this is a quote, there are just way too many guns in our city right now. I mean, uh, how helpful. I like that tells us nothing about this particular situation, but it certainly uses this tragedy to try to justify further actions that I'm sure that the Edmonton police would want to take um, in terms of dealing with, um, you know, uh, potentially uh, gangs and guns uh, type of strategies that they might have uh, to bolster the, the police department, but actually tells us nothing about this tragedy. Yeah, no, totally. Um, so the whole angle on Pizza Hut in this is is also very curious. And so very close to where this happened, about a block uh, from where this happened, on Sunday night, there was a shooting at a Pizza Hut. And uh, it took the police almost 24 hours, not until the, not until the, the end of Monday, to release video footage of the individual who shot the worker at Pizza Hut. Now, you can't really see much about the individual. You can see he's white, a male, probably young, doesn't look like an old kind of grizzled kind of individual. But someone was in touch with me who lives in the neighborhood and was like, we just had a shooting at the local Pizza Hut and police didn't have any presence. There was no information communicated to the community. We weren't told to be careful or watch out. They didn't They didn't capture the suspect. So there was a guy who had just walked into a pizza hut and shot someone and then left. And that person was at large and there was no information shared with anyone in the community. And, and so the, the, the content of the, of the conversation that I had was like, wow, that's so weird. This disproportionate like reaction to this shooting and with that shooting was like not even told to journalists until journalists like got a tip from other people that it had happened. And then the police were kind of forced to talk about it. But now several uh, sources reported by CTV Edmonton are saying that uh, the Edmonton police are investigating to see if it's the same person, to see if it's the same person. And so then then the story isn't just about a teen's mental health crisis or, or me- mental health in general or how this individual became so violent. Now it's also about a failure of policing to even deal with a first shooting, which then ends up killing two police officers. Uh <laughs> Have they have they provided information about why they think that these two things are linked besides the fact that they're in the same neighborhood? The story says Edmonton police are investigating whether the 16 year old boy who shot and killed the two officers is the same person that shot a Pizza Hut employee earlier this week. Multiple sources have told CTV News. That's that's uh, that's all we got. Yeah, from what I'm reading in the Star, it says a suspect was never identified. Some media reports say it was the same 16-year-old. The police say that they are being treated as two separate investigations, though they are investigating a link. I don't know, Nora. All of that (laughs) noncommittalness sounds really weird to me, Uh, and it... 
it, it just raises a number of questions about the way that police report what they think is newsworthy to the media and how the media then reports it back to us. Because if it's the case that these, that the media, I mean, the police are are trying to investigate a link, sure, that's worth telling us, but it's also worth telling us if they're refusing to tell you why they think there's a link. (laughs) It's worth telling us whether or not you Mm -hmm. can find out any more information about there being a link beyond the police. If it's like multiple sources, is it witnesses? Is it like, tell us a little bit about that. Tell us why you're investigating it versus reporting back to us just what the police are reporting to us to that could be uh, worded in such a way to make you think that they are onto a thing that they may not be onto <laughs> or that something is happening that may not be happening. Because even in this situation itself, we can see how they have provided information to the media in a way to frame the story that the public will be talking about. I mean, even like if if we're going to add to that story, if there's going to be additions to that story involving additional shootings, my God, like find out something more about it than police say. Otherwise, I mean, you, you might as well just be the police PR department. Mm. Yeah. And it's especially curious, too, because the shooting at the Pizza Hut it was all on camera. And the the images are actually pretty clear that they've released. I mean, as I say, the individual is not clear because he's covered up and his face is covered or whatever. But you can see the gun that he's using. And they would have recovered the gun that he used to kill himself with. Uh, you know, like there's really obvious kind of like, sorry, what's was it the same gun? Have you looked at the gun? It, 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 like, are you literally just assuming it could be this guy because it's the same neighborhood? Like, that's that's not that's not the worst evidence. Like, people don't just walk around shooting fucking cops and Pizza Hut employees. So maybe it's the same person. But like, you can literally see the gun in the pictures of the Pizza Hut. And yeah, you know, I think maybe what we're dealing with here is like, like, when our media is so hollowed out and so used to just taking the police line, regardless of if the journalists want to or not, and I suspect in most cases they don't want to necessarily, they're just like, this is what we've got, then this is what we've got. And I just think it is so bizarre because it's like, you know, we're recording on Sunday night. All the stories that I'm seeing related to this are from... Uh, yesterday or from Friday, like there's no news on the weekend. (laughs) There's no update to this story because the cops haven't given an update. Like it's just like considering the number of people that messaged me privately about what they knew about this before it came out. That means that there's people in the community talking like there's something going on. And I can only assume that there's just not enough journalists doing work on the weekend to actually get information that is not the cops. And so, you know, it's a good reminder that as the media becomes more and more thin, as people continue to get laid off, that it absolutely protects and supports and helps out the police to give them total control over what's being said. And now this case is a special case because, I mean, police do not get killed very often. Uh, I did see one article that said they're the fourth members of the Edmonton police to be killed since. And I was like, oh, wow, since 1990. 1990. 
So it's like, that's actually a pretty good record of non-death, folks. Like, I mean... I mean, well, this, the CBC r- ran a story that was literally a, a history of the Edmonton police officers who have died while on duty. Oh, really? So I, I expect that this is a complete list. It's 10 officers since the Edmonton Police Department hired its first constable in 1892. Wow. Okay, like that's, that's good. That's a, that's a record they should be proud of in a way. I mean, four workers died from a COVID infection from CNRL alone. <laughs> like, I, this, is, this is propaganda, you know? Like you don't have to do this journalism. If you're going to do that journalism and not the journalism of like, wait a minute, we can see the guy's gun. Is it the same gun? You guys recovered the gun. What's the gun look like? Uh, then we can see what, what you're, what you're sending your limited resources to do. And, and in some cases it's also like just the easiest journalism because the Edmonton police are going to have that information on hand because like any police force and like any workplace, they have a list of people who've been killed on the job. That's like something that workplaces have because you honor those people. That's what you do. Oh Yeah. The first line of the article, just to prove um, like exactly what you're saying about the ease of the journalism and that being one of the motivations for why these sorts of propaganda story exists. The first line of the article that I just referenced in CBC is, since the Edmonton Police Department hired its first constable in 1892, 10 officers have been killed while on the job, according to the history section of the police services website. <laughs> So and then and then it's an entire article. It's an entire article about like uh, you know the first police officers from 1918, and it's just like, could you imagine? Could you imagine writing instead? I mean, you have all of these these uh, choices available to you of the story that you could tell on the weekend, or did, I mean, this was. A, um, published on Friday, the story that you could tell um, after this happens. You could also be telling a story of, of, you know, how often is it that children are taking these types of actions and what have we done that has helped or not helped? But Nora, that story, it takes longer to write. You're going to need to do a little bit more research in order to get the information that you need for that story. And you're probably going to have to talk to um, some politicians about why things haven't happened, some mental health professionals about why things have or haven't happened, what approaches were taken, maybe investigate places where uh, approaches to children's mental health are going really well and talk to them about it. That's, that's a longer article to write. That's a more in-depth investigation that is harder than a page on the Edmonton police website that will give you the article that you want to write anyway. And you only have so much time. You only have so many resources. Uh, the, your, your bosses are, you know, laying off people and expecting more from you and your deadlines are coming up faster with less resources. It kind of hamstrings you and, uh, it does make propaganda that's just being provided really simply from the police really attractive if you're just trying to get the job done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and like, you know, making a connection between other mental health crises that are happening in this country and let's say youth mental health crises, like right after this happened, right after this happened, a 19-year-old stabbed to death three members of his family in Montreal. Right after, like last week. 
And, you know, sure, 19 years old is not 16 years old, but uh, it's still pretty fucking young. And again, like there's no attempt or desire to link these stories. Like there's no there's no like ability, I guess, for any journalist to work outside of the the very rigid lines uh, in which they are forced to or they they self-impose themselves or whatever to, to, to write these stories. And I, I mean, maybe there would even be people out there that argue there is no link. That one's Edmonton and two police officers are shot and a mother was shot but didn't die. And the other was a whole family being stabbed by a, a 19 year old. Like, I mean, there's obvious connections. But, you know, I said this on the Daily News podcast the fact that the that the day after or a couple of days after that the big news item for the country, the national news headlines was not something is wrong. Something is going wrong with young boys, clearly. And I mean, and young girls, too. We also have these swarming attacks in Toronto. And rather than having any kind of conversation about what may have led them to it, it was always these sensational like what teen girls can be violent. Who knew? And it's like, what the fuck? You've never been in high school. Like, OK. There's nothing. There's no. There's nothing. There's no crisis. There's no urgency. There's nothing. 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 And all I've seen in terms of funding is like the families of the deceased officers. They're getting hundred thousand dollars each, which you've mentioned. Okay. Where? Where's the urgency? This isn't urgent. No one cares. No one fucking cares. The only thing that matters is making sure that the narratives that are already out there uh, are juiced by the police PR machine. And 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 we're seeing that as well with the, the deceased uh, officer in Ontario making all of the case for the bail conditions in Canada needing to be even harsher. And then we have the Toronto Star saying that a majority of Canadians want the death penalty back. And it's like journalists like what the fuck are you doing journalists like media like the system like you individually like you entirely you as a newsroom your bosses your owners what are you what why are you juicing this and refusing to actually get at the real story and following exactly the line of the cops exactly the line of the politicians why are you doing this well i mean we know why they're doing this but that's that's fucking deadly it's absolutely deadly. And the, the flip side of this, too, is also how we talk about mental health in the media. If you were to read articles about mental health, like have, have there been articles about uh, children struggling with mental health? Sure. Sure, there have. There's been a bunch of um, articles ran a few weeks ago about um, uh, youth struggling after post-pandemic. That was like the way... Uh, these articles were kind of coordinated. But whenever we talk about mental health, there, the, the discussion about mental health is often, first of all, after the fact. So it's, it's always about like services that should exist for people who are experiencing a mental health crisis at this moment. And it's always um, divorced from like something uh, like a reality that's happening. It's, it's, it's very often, you know, we're talking about statistics, like broad strokes, what's happening. And that's fine. I actually think that that's a good way to talk about, you know, any topic. I mean, if we're, if we're talking about safety, it would be great if we would talk about safety in, in a broad strokes kind of like, let's take a look at the statistics sort of way so that we know what's actually happening in our communities. That's fine. But we never take you know, when we're reporting on incidents like something like this and link it back to the issue of mental health, like these things are always discussed separately, which is why I think some people have some difficulty connecting the fact that policing is such a scourge on 
so much that we need in our society is because we often talk about policing divorced from all of the things that it is very much related to um, in terms of making a problem worse. And we're seeing that right here. And part of the way that that is accomplished is because of the way that police deliver the story and influence the way that the story is then told through the media. Like, I mean, fuck, Nora and I teach a lot of um, workshops on on media to a, a lot of people, and we know that there's levels of distortion that can happen at every level of communication, the reception of the people who are the audience, the media itself, and what is, is being uh, communicated and how, and then the message itself. And this, I mean, th- the distortion around these very serious problems are happening on every level <laughs> when it comes to policing, when it comes to mental health and so many other uh, problems in our society that policing makes worse. Yeah, I mean, like just a couple of days before this whole incident happened, you, then you also had the Calgary police putting out a missing persons announcement or, a, you know, a concerned persons announcement saying that they want to locate someone because their family was worried about him. And then a few days later, him being shot by Red Deer RCMP. like god what oh my god what like you know again in this in these just these stories are happening they happen all the time it wasn't a youth it was it was a man who's 30 years old and who people said that they saw him firing a a a gun in a in a walmart park parking lot but then hours later rcmp show up wherever he is and then fucking shoot him Mm -hmm. like the police Obviously, obviously. I mean, I feel like we have to like not allow ourselves to even talk about this again because it is so obvious. I mean, we have to because it's so important. But it's like they are bad at this. They are deadly at this. They uh, apparently put themselves in harm uh, dealing with this stuff and they shouldn't do it. Like the police, like policing shouldn't exist. It absolutely should not exist when someone's in a mental health crisis. That is very fucking clear. But when we have clear patterns exposing themselves and that there are absolutely critical conversations that need to be happening around the general shit mental health of Canadians right now, like all Canadians, but it is particularly egregious when we're talking about children because they will carry the scars of whatever they experience now for the rest of their lives. And because of how the police sphincter allowed, disallowed, allowed, disallowed different information to come out on the first 12 hours or more of, of, of what happened last week, There's no front and center conversation related to how the fuck does a 16-year-old kill two police officers? Like, all we're supposed to just assume is just, like, people are getting, like, what, more violent, more deadly. There's more guns. There's more gangs. This is is what we're supposed to believe. I mean, it's very, it's very, um, uh, it's very gross and it's very dangerous and and all it serves are the Danielle Smiths of the world, the fucking Justin Trudeaus of the world, the... Doug Ford's of the world, like all of these people who just will will do everything they can to make it worse. Yeah, I just, I mean, gosh, I, there's this one other quote from another story that I just want to read off because I just think <laughs> it just it just feels so ludicrous to me. Like it's this is you know um, uh, the police responding uh, about this this situation, and they're saying. There was nothing that flagged that this would require any extra services. 
The call itself was a nonviolent domestic dispute where a mother is having difficulty with her 16-year-old son, LaFour said. There was nothing to indicate that this was dangerous or a high threat um, or violent response for our members. Now, like, I just think about that, Nora. Like, this is a mother is having a nonviolent domestic dispute with her 16-year-old son. This is what the police are communicating. Why is it her only option to call the police? <laughs> like, like, like I just, it's just, it's right there in, in what how they are communicating to us about this situation. Why, why, what the fuck are we doing as a society when that is her only option? 